Hi everyone, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Um, this is not Jay, I'm not going to do a Jay impression this time. <laughs> this is Andy, I'm here with Tammy today. Tammy, how are you doing? Hey Andy, I'm good. Back in the city, nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you. Yeah, on Zoom you get to tell we're both wearing um, stripy shirts. <laughs> it's very easy to, to wear. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so Jay is gone uh, for this week. Um, he's busy, he'll you know, come back. We're all busy, I think. The next few weeks we might be kind of rotating with a few guests. Tammy is going to have a guest next week, and you know we'll see how it goes. Um, there's a lot, obviously, going on in the news. Um, today we'll have a guest on the second half of the show, uh, Professor Netta Crawford from Boston University um, that Tammy will introduce. Um, but, I mean, at uh, first, what's, like, Tammy, what's going on with you? Like, how, how's life back in New York City after months away? I'm good. After I'm adjusting. Away? Yeah, I'm adjusting seeing old friends and therefore drinking a lot, um, but <laughs> having fun and also trying to track the news a little bit because this week's the Korea presidential election, right. yeah. which is so, pretty horrifying for people I don't who have been following. <laughs> I, I said I was going to read up on it, but I didn't. So you can explain to me, but also explain to our listeners what are the, uh, what are the big things that are happening in Korea right now. Yeah. So Korea has a period of early voting. The election is on Wednesday, but people have already been voting. They also had a program of voting for people who are coronavirus positive or potentially positive, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, But, you know, this is a fairly high stakes election. feels very pressed because um, obviously Moon Jae-in, who's in finishing up his presidency now had come in after the impeachment of Park Geun-hye and was supposed to be sort of the people's president. And there were very high hopes, uh, most of which sort of fell flat. And now we have two um, main candidates from the two main parties, Lee Jae-myung and Yoon Song-yeol, who um, are sort of in a dead heat right now. And Yoon, to my mind, would be a devastating result. Um, he's extremely right-wing, um, you know, sort of has authoritarian tendencies. He's, he's a criminal prosecutor by trade. Um, and so it's reminding a lot of people who had lived through di- the dictatorships of, of that sort of personality, this kind of strongman personality. So I'm yeah. fairly concerned about about the results this week. What is, what is um, so is this kind of like, is he like the Republican? Is that like the analogy? Yeah. And I think some people have made a sort of Trumpist analogy, you know, um, I don't know if we're just doing that all the time now for anyone who's like right wing <laughs> anywhere in the world, but and there are certain personality features. <laughs> yeah, like anyone that. we don't like, like our neighbor, our neighbors. Pretty like much. <laughs> yeah. So what is what is driving the um, yeah what is driving that? Because I thought the last time we talked, which is like I think like two years ago, about Korean politics, it seemed like the incumbent was doing pretty well. The coronavirus response was good, and generally people thought like we're happy. I thought with the administration, is that am I yeah. misremembering? I mean, I think Moon's ratings have generally been okay, but I would say for Moon's ardent supporters, there's been a lot of disappointment over these five years that he's been in office. Um, Obviously, he had to deal with a lot of stuff with North Korea and sort of made that a primary plank of his um, of his platform, sort of for better or worse. And I think there's a little bit of a perception that domestically he ended up neglecting a lot of issues that are close to people's hearts, like for instance, affordability of housing, or, you know, he did a little bit with the minimum wage, but, you know, sort of labor rights, um, you know, sort of classic, basically like neoliberal issues that everyone is dealing with in the world. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, I think we've talked maybe briefly in the show about the kind of rise of the the young male right wing in Korea. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think a lot of women, sexual minorities, poor people are feeling sort of disenchanted with and neglected by mainstream politics. Um, Moon also had promised a sort of, again, the kind of people's platform where he would be in conversation with people. He would, you know, be mm-hmm. outside of the presidential palace, kind of in the streets. And he, I think, is now the president who has done the fewest public press conferences um, oh, in what? yeah modern Korean history. So he's very what? sort of yeah, been why? cloistered. And it seems like he's a, been become sort of a fearful politician and not a savvy one at all. So, mm. um, yeah, I like, think just a lot of mixed feelings about him. So he, he was always, maybe this was always who he was. And it just kind of turns out he's disappointing people who like, <laughs> do people think he was like, I don't know, this charismatic Obama like figure. Initially I think and, so. And that's yeah. who I had compared him to when he was kind of early in his <laughs> early years of office. And I think right. actually that's an apt analogy in the sense of the hopes and the deflation of the hopes. <laughs> and like Trump coming in right after. And then a sort of Trumpist. Yeah. So we'll yeah. see. I mean, hopefully Lee, who has problems, but is will be a fine sort of liberal, you know, in office will prevail. Yeah. So but that's what I'm nervous about right now. We're recording this on Monday. What is this? The 8th? 7th. It'll come out Seven. on the 8th. The election is, is the 9th. Is that the last day? Yeah, the ninth, the Wednesday will be the Tuesday here. So okay. yeah, we'll Do you have sort a of be coming out. Twenty four hours left. No, but I'm, I'm again. I think they're in a dead heat. A lot of people are worried that Yoon will prevail, especially because there was a third of the sort of major candidate who formed a unity ticket with Yoon. Yeah. yeah. So this guy Antorsu has has uh, put on with Yoon and merged their parties. So and they're both that's quite scary. Right wingish. Like you know, An, An is like a sort of unplaceable candidate, but um, yeah, he has now been in several races where he was kind of out in a kind of like undefined political space and then sort of formed a unity ticket. So yeah, we'll okay. see. Well, yeah. horrifying news from Korea, I guess. Horrifying news. <laughs> yeah. Our depressing prayers. news corner returns. Right. Um, yeah. How are you doing? Korea. You've been, I feel like you've been cooking a lot because you're yeah. posting recipes in our chat. Yeah. So um, I mean, you already know this, so maybe it won't surprise you, but I feel like there's some shock value to this. I've, so I think all of us <laughs> have been cooking a lot, um, A, because of COVID. Uh, B, I think my realization was like, Philadelphia is like a very good city in many ways. It doesn't have very good Asian food. And I think my realization was, I just got to like make my own Asian food. Um, there's some good places, obviously, but... Um, yeah, all the people in Philly are super... Fun. Yeah, I don't want to insult everyone. I, I could give a shout out to a few restaurants, but you know, they're not sponsoring the podcast or anything. But uh, in the middle of the pandemic, I think a lot of people have had this experience watching all these cooking shows and recipes. The YouTube algorithm gives you, you know, unsolicited advice on what to cook. Oh, and okay. So one video came up, I think, two years ago at this point, of a sushi chef walking around, I think, Florida, honestly. Like, uh, it was like a sushi chef in Florida. They went to like... Whole Foods, uh, Walmart, like all the grocery stores, they bought all the raw fish mm-hmm. and then they tested, like, could you eat this as sushi? And they basically oh, concluded that okay. the Whole Foods salmon, you could, it was totally safe to eat it. It didn't smell. It wasn't grimy okay. or whatever. So then I started going to Whole Foods, <laughs> buying their farm raised Atlanta. Yeah, sure. Whatever. Uh, we don't have, co- <laughs> we don't have the co-op here, but uh, <laughs> Uh, and then, yeah, I've, I've been eating basically raw fish from Whole Foods for two years now. And I feel comfortable <laughs> saying that because it's been two years. I haven't had any issues with it. On the other hand, like no liability. Like if you get sick because of this podcast, you know, we're not, we're, li- we're limited <laughs> liability. So we can only. We know, do not support Whole Foods or Bezos. Yeah. Generally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's a personal choice. But yeah, I've been, 
um yeah so I like every time I uh and I, I think on this podcast we've claimed to be vegetarians before but yeah I have to confess I'm a pescatarian <laughs> I basically eat fish if it's Asian that's about it um uh, are you are you truly that's vegetarian? kind of where I am too yeah I was so I had been like a lifelong vegetarian but I feel like that has slowly and especially when I'm living in Korea in Asia, right. it's basically impossible right like you have to eat it's, fish sauce or whatever small tiny fish for flavoring and stuff now is that true even in like not in the coastal cities like Seoul is like in the middle like I guess there's a peninsula but it's on the <laughs> river right like it's like infested with seafood every infested or, you know like you can't you can't um, avoid it yeah because most pantan have some seafood flavoring even right, right? so even if right. you're not ordering your main dish Right. That has seafood. It's pretty right. hard to avoid. But like the Korean restaurants here, they're always doing pork and beef. And yeah, like is that Ameri- an Americanized version of it? Like in Korea, is the, is the is the protein typically fish? I don't think it's as much as like when you go to Japan or something where it's like yeah. fish and rice, right? Which is right, kind right. of. But but yeah, I would say like you. There's so many different kinds of Korean restaurants that don't have any meat. And that, you know, where you can right. basically, but, but still in the broth, there might be like anchovy broth or whatever. Right. But yeah, you don't have to eat like the pork and beef kind of centric thing yeah. that we have here. That's a U.S. thing. I think did a you, bit more. Did you stumble on any um, algorithm recipes that made you eat something <laughs> new and exciting during So the- I like, I have so little patience for watching videos on YouTube that I basically just clip out recipes from the physical newspaper or magazines. Right. Um, but like, yeah, so I don't know what my algorithm is. What what newspapers carry recipes? Like, the, does the New York Times print edition actually have the New mm-hmm. York Times recipe? Oh, I don't yeah. know that. Well, because okay. like I yeah, so I prefer that, and then I like put them in my folder, and like, like a like literally a folder. <laughs> yeah, a Manila folder of recipes. I also used to have this subscription to Sunset Magazine, the West Coast lifestyle magazine, which has okay. good recipes too. <laughs> Are they like vegan, microbial? They're just like that. They're based on an assumption of good produce, which I do not have in New York City. <laughs> I know, right? It's yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been eating. Um, I've basically been like trying to make my own version of like good Asian food at home. Um, so cheap too. It's well, like, you should. Okay, so we'll post Andy's recipe <laughs> for Whole Foods. Sam, we can, like, we can, are you eating poke? Basically, yeah, it is basically poke. So yeah. I mean, I did my own research. If all this a a farm raised <laughs> salmon shouldn't have parasites because it's farm raised. Mm-hmm. B, they do this deep freeze that's way colder than our own freezers, so we can't do this at home. But if it has oh, any okay. parasites, it kills the parasites. Interesting. Yeah, and just like defrost it in water for 30 minutes, and it should be smell-free. And yeah, chop it up, scallions, <laughs> soy sauce, sesame seeds, sushi rice, $5. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, All right, stay tuned dish. for the Andy, <laughs> the Andy YouTube. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, you know, I shouldn't actually like share the secret because the price of salmon has been going up, so I don't want. Um, maybe if so you're worried about rocking bonus. the market. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, right. I hope I hope nobody gets sick. Sorry. Right. Be safe if you do this at home. That's my <laughs> takeaway. Yeah. Uh, Speaking yeah. of the market. Right. Yeah. Good. Good segue. <laughs> Good segue. Um, I've been wanting to talk about an article you wrote for The Nation, Andy, for a couple of weeks now um, in the March 7th and 14th issue of The Nation. In the books and arts section, Andy has a piece called The Market Specter, China Between Capitalism and Communism, in which, Andy, you reviewed two books. And um, it's sort of 
germane to some of the Ukraine, China kind of great power politics stuff that we talk about. But also, I just was really curious to get your take as someone who is an expert in the Chinese, the history of Chinese economics. Um, Andy, yeah. if you guys don't know, is the author of his own book. Um, <laughs> yeah, from the early episodes, War, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which Thanks. we featured very early on in the show. But anyway, yeah. um, Andy, do you want to talk about this essay, why you wrote it, what the significance of these questions is to today? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the simple question or the simple answer is probably the same for you a lot of the times is an editor asked me to, David Marcus, who might be a listener <laughs> of the podcast, I think, um, asked me to review a couple books. Um, one is by Jason Kelly um, called Market Maoist, and one is by Isabella Weber called uh, How China Escapes Shock Therapy. Um, and I have to say, like, my, you know, as an academic, my whole background is like 19th century history. Um, and But I've recently begun thinking like, I mean, I don't, this is a discussion for another day. Like, I can't keep doing the 19th century. I have to do like something that's closer <laughs> to the present or else I'll go insane. Uh, so this is actually, I don't think I am an expert. And, and this was actually an attempt to force myself to try to analyze and articulate some stuff from the last few decades. So Jason Kelly's book argues that, I mean, basically these are both about the communist period from the 50s to the 80s. Mm-hmm. And most people's understanding of that period was always, you know, this is the era of Mao Zedong is in power. The Chinese Communist Party is an authoritarian state that controls everything. And um, this is why, like, they'll they'll fail, you know, compared to freedom. And then in the last few years, <laughs> the, the obvious thing that nobody can miss is that China actually is the second or maybe even already the largest economy in the world. Yeah. They've actually succeeded spectacularly at capitalism or market economics, whatever you want to call it. So now people are, I think, historians and scholars, Isabella's an economist, Jason is um, a historian, are looking back at this period of the 50s, 60s, and 70s and seeing a lot of not just like one monochromatic socialism, but mixed economies, mixed economic strategies, which I, which I think a lot of people are actually thinking about as well, because we have this narrative of neoliberalism that everything was very organized and planned till the 70s, and then there's a big boom, and then everything went to like pure market policies, but you know, big boom stories don't really explain anything. They're just like something changed overnight that's inexplicable. So for historians, we're always kind of looking for like, you know, what what were the season origins of the stuff before? So Jason's book is about, even during the Mao period, um, there was a lot of illicit black trade, black market trade, or just like state sanctioned trade at the margins of the socialist mm-hmm. economy. Um, and in particular, I know a lot of other friends are working on this as well, is Hong Kong, the Hong Kong-China border. Right. was really important. Um, and so I think listeners have probably heard of Shenzhen, the big special economic zone that's right mm-hmm. on the border of Hong Kong, famously created in 1979. Um, but I think we know now that that was, again, it wasn't a big boom. 1979, 1979 wasn't the start of this. It was this kind of official creation of the city, which now is like 12 million people. And that's where like Alibaba is and all these Chinese you know, multinational corporations you've heard of are all based in the city. Um, but there is lot of capitalist quote-unquote capitalist trade between hong kong which was a british colony and china across that border for decades and so um capitalism was never dead right especially yeah. in the south- southern part of china so that's one story i think it's has a lot of relevance for how we understand like hong kong today um and just like the market sort of peripheral market e- economics in china the other one is isabella weber's work um work if you're on twitter if you're in like Econ Twitter, China Twitter, <laughs> inflation Twitter. You know, you're, you've probably seen some mention of her work. Um, and she's she's a fr- she's a friend, so I don't want to like 
uh, I pretend like I don't know her. Um, I also don't want to like speak for her, but um, she wrote this book that was about the 1980s in China. Again, we have this common narrative that in the 70s and the 80s, the world was one way, and then there was this big boom, and everything changed, including China, going from Mao authoritarianism to like Deng Xiaoping embracing capitalism. Mm-hmm. And she's arguing that you know, in fact, China did study the quote unquote the neoliberals, the Chicago School, the Vienna School of Economics. And they were like, you know, some of this is pretty interesting. Like we have to do some market policies. We have to change, like allow prices to float by the market. We have to deregulate, uh, what's the word? De- deregulate? Yeah, deregulate mm-hmm. labor, you know, which is not yeah. good, but you know, it's good for economics. Um, but they were saying like, in the end, we can't, we can't do this thing, which was at the time called package reform. And Isabella argues that's actually what Russia does embrace in the nineties called package reform or shock therapy. And this kind of does connect to today because I think the backdrop to a lot of Russia, Ukraine, that is a little bit not discussed right now is like, why exactly are Russia and Ukraine in such bad condition economically? Like Ukraine is actually worse economically than it was in the eighties. And, um, you know, there's a very common narrative, um, that I believe for a long time, but I'm starting to think like maybe more complex is that in the nineties, Russia allowed these IMF economists, including Jeffrey Sachs from Columbia university to tell them like just liberalize everything overnight and then it was a disaster especially these oligarchs and maybe we can talk about if that's racist to say oligarchs <laughs> these russian oligarchs hoarded the economy and like they, yeah. they they got rich at the expense of everyone else and that's why russia is in this mm-hmm. terrible situation and the oligarchs supported putin and and so on right so there's this question of like well what are the transitions of these socialist economies respectively uh, a lot of them, you know, in the 80s and 90s, but especially Russia and China. Um, and China is, you know, we can criticize it in a lot of ways, right? right rightfully so. But from an economic standpoint, it's, it's a success story. Um, and so what Isabella was saying was, you know, it succeeded not because they bought into neoliberalism wholesale, but actually they adapted some of these ideas to, I, well, this is my interpretation of the article, but I think this is what she's saying. They held on to like a lot of their traditional, not tra- traditional, traditional is a bad word, the, the socialist tradition. Their Confucian tradition. Yeah, their Confucian tradition. <laughs> their mention, yeah, mentions. So uh, sort of like this, like a statist, a statist capitalism, right? So. Yeah. And, and I think, I wish I was, I knew more about this, but just kind of writing this stuff. I think we basically have this swing all the way through the 2000s, 90s. They joined the WTO into 2008 with the Olympics. And then that. Uh, I don't know, ironically or fittingly coincides with the 08 crisis. And since the 08 crisis, China has kind of begun to push back and gone back towards state controlled, uh, state control over its economy, as well as, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, like they had a quote unquote good relationship with the US up until mm-hmm. about 08. And then since then, it's gotten worse and worse till, you know, the basically the context of this podcast, like the US China rivalry. <laughs> right, um, I see. So, yeah, so I think there's a story to be told um, that's uh, of the kind of parallels between China and Russia. Yeah, that's, you know, there are a lot more urgent things to talk about right now in terms of Russia and Ukraine. But I I think there's a backdrop there and especially China, you know, begins to play a larger role in the conflict. Uh, I don't know, I'm sure (laughs) 100 think pieces will bloom uh, eventually. (laughs) So the the economic path that China chose. um, So would you argue, I mean, obviously, a lot of countries, including our own has an oligarchic class, you know, but, um, you know, and so we can get into the kind of Orientalism of the Russian characterization. But in China, given that it it sort of sidestepped this kind of neoliberal blueprint, um, 
w- were they able to avoid that? I mean, there, is there an oligarchic class yeah. that we can identify in China? Yeah, I mean, my understanding of the oligarchy term is it's referring to the fact that in Russia or the USSR, they had state monopolies. And then instead of dissolving the monopolies, they just said, here, you have it. Hand it over to right. individuals, essentially. Right. So it was yeah. like state-enabled private right. monopolies. And so that's why I kind of am into, this is like my woke take or anti-woke take, zig versus zag. Oligarchy is not necessarily a bad term because it is making a distinction in terms of post-Soviet mm-hmm. uh, yeah. capitalism versus whatever we have, right? And in China, there's definitely stories of the fact that they wiped the economy clean for 30, 40 years during the Mao period did mean that there were these like amazing stories that you hear from China of this farmer who like started selling sunflower seeds and then owns <laughs> right. a multinational corporation by the yeah, you know, within 20 exactly. years. Which was only made possible by the fact that the economy was wiped clean by socialism, right? So it's not the same as Russia in terms of. Yeah. Well, I think there is some of that also, like by coming, like a lot of these. Honestly, they have like family connections to the government, and that that gets right. them these great opportunities. Yeah, and and honestly, Isabella's point I think is just like there was a gradual as opposed to overnight uh, process, and then part of part of what she's also saying is that neoclassical neoliberal economics. You know, you know, the stereotype is it treats everything like a market. Like everything is about put everything on the market. A price will naturally emerge, and people can just trade. And what these socialists were saying, and this gets back into like the tradition, of like socialist economics, Marxist economics, is that like, well, production is different than exchange. Like, if you and I buy something at the store, those are two things that already exist. Production actually has to make something out of nothing. And that is a special kind of economic activity. Um, and so if they unleash the market, quote unquote, but the Chinese economy couldn't make enough energy, oil, electricity, raw cotton, timber to satisfy mm-hmm. market demand, inflation would get out of control. And that's would create perverse incentives where people would just kind of speculate rather than like improve technology to blah, 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 blah. So the state had to actually make sure in, 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 in the, the industries were strong enough. You know, they could and say you like- get into this a little bit when in your discussion of- her dual price controls thing. Right, Do you want to yeah. talk about that? The heavy goods versus the light goods and how China approached that question of how to control prices? Yeah. The basic argument, and this Isabella's argument dating back to using like ancient Chinese terms like qing, qing and zong, this from uh, uh, Guanzi. So qing means light, zong means heavy. And basically like there are certain things in the economy that are essential. And those are called heavy, and those can, and the government should actually play a role in regulating that, which we have with like energy, you know, and yeah. gas and things like that. Um, so we already in, are in kind of an economy that does that anyway. And then things that are light, that are you know, luxuries, stuff we could use but we don't necessarily need it. That stuff we can let the market decide, right? But yeah. there's certain things that are too important to be commodified. And I also kind of think that's. You know, Isabel's book has done really well, and I think part of the reason is it's resonating with this idea that a lot of people have, this critique of neoliberalism. Yeah, That totally. it doesn't differentiate between things that are essential, uh, natural resources, human life, you know? Yeah, exactly. Versus, versus the And a human rights argument around public goods. You yeah, know, exactly. Sort of baseline for flourishing and survival. Yeah, yeah. So, so we had talked last week when Sophie was on a little bit about kind of how um, the Ukraine situation, you know, in which direction it augurs for the fate of Taiwan and maybe right. for other small states who are thinking, oh my God, what do I do next to this really large, scary state? And um, today in the Times, there was a cobylined piece talking about how she may have had warning from Putin that Putin was going to make this move and that she might have even told Putin not to make the move until after the Olympics. 
Um, and that she and Putin were essentially thinking of themselves as forming a kind of pole um, in yeah. the world against the U.S. So, um, yeah, Andy, what do you make of this report? I remember in the Olympic episode, we were talking about the U.S. fear-mongering fear on NBC. And I remember Mike Tirico said, like, the whole world watches while Russia invade yeah. Ukraine during the Olympics. And at the time, I was like, this Jeez. is silly. And now I feel... You know, obviously, oh I was wrong. <laughs> and yeah. Putin and um, she's sitting next to each other, very cozy, whispering. Yeah, which is, <laughs> yeah, I wonder what language they were, I guess, English. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So there's, so there's, I think there's like two facts that everyone agrees upon without knowing the full details. One is, yes, China said, like, do whatever you want, but don't do it during, don't do it during the Olympics. Um, but that's not the same thing as saying, like, you know, let's put it on our like Google calendars. Like, when are you going to invade Ukraine? Like, they weren't, they didn't actually, they weren't positively involved. And we know this kind of because their reaction to the actual invasion, what is it, two weeks ago, two and one and a half weeks now, was very delayed and surprised. And they like were really slow in evacuating Chinese nationals. Their statement on day one was that had like changed by day four. So it wasn't a coordinated thing between yeah. the two. That said, like, there's a lot of speculation, and nobody really knows, obviously, aside, mm -hmm. aside from those in power in, in Beijing, like, what their next move will be. Um, the New York, New York Times quoted someone saying the general mood in Beijing is like, why did you do this? Like, you don't, like, why did Putin do this? You know, you don't, you didn't need to do this. You could have achieved your goals of, I don't know, like, mm. stonewalling the US or stonewalling NATO without um, incurring and inviting like all this uh, uh, hostility from the rest of the world. Um, you know, there's been speculation that China could play a role. Yeah. In, in mediating. Right. And now that's coming from like a Chinese press release. So that's maybe their positive spin. Um, I saw a tweet from Ho Feng Hung, who's a sociologist in Johns Hopkins, very yeah. good China watcher guy. And, uh, but he's always kind of thinking about this from the periphery, from the periphery. And he thinks that ultimately Another way of thinking of this is if Beijing could somehow see it that Russia, quote unquote, wins, then this helps them if they want to take Taiwan, you know? Mm -hmm. So they might have a stake in actually negotiating it in a way that allows Russia to actually make gains. Yeah. Because, you know? like, maybe Russia, I don't know, this feels, also feels orientalist. People have said, like, Putin needs to save face. He won't leave without saving face. Um, and, right. but maybe he could, he, <laughs> he could, needs like, an off ramp or whatever is that. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, That's interesting. But uh, I mean, I think I wonder yeah. at the same time, you know, if she is quite concerned about how they're going to come off in the international community, right? Because it sounded like from the Times coverage and elsewhere that, you know, initially they didn't want to comment on it. They're still not calling it an invasion, but they are sort of gesturing towards respecting sovereignty, you know, so they, they don't want to fully say like, this is fine. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've also seen people on like India, South Asia, Twitter, Modi has not condemned it. He's also okay with it. It does seem like, right. you know, not to do the cl classic historian thing too much, but I think I mentioned this to you earlier. Like when, when I was reading Putin's speech, it just really reminded me of like what was going on with the fascists in the thirties, which is not to like excuse what they were doing, but to explain their mentality, which was they felt sure. like this thing called the West, which at the time meant Britain, but now means the U S this thing called the West has all the power. They're hypocrites. They say one thing, but do something else. Um, we try to go along, we try to play their game, but they'll never see us as equals. So the only way to survive is to watch out for ourselves and to align ourselves with others who are in a similar situation. So I think between China and Russia, the thing that unites them 
if we're to believe the reports, is that they both feel betrayed by the U.S. or hemmed in by the U.S. Yeah. And they're going to team up and create a new axis. Um, and to the extent other countries feel the same way about the U.S., you're free to join us, you know, and China especially, we have the capital to give you loans and help 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 your economies and so on and so forth. And that is definitely like a something that like on record DC doesn't want. Like like the United States is trying to stop the rise of China's economy. Um so there is a real tension there. There is an objective one without mm-hmm. you know, taking sides. Um so it does seem like what brought them together was this kind of mutual sense of like the United States can't be trusted and NATO can't be trusted. Um and yeah, I don't know. And you it, believe that's more than just a sort of PR angle. Um, propaganda. Well, if if it were PR, what do you think it's covering up for? Well, I just mean propaganda in the sense that um, I think so. Obviously, they're saying you know we should have this our particular spheres of influence, and the U.S. shouldn't encroach on that, and the U.S. is this threat, you know. But um, I think even if they didn't necessarily feel that way, they could have imperial, you know desires right yeah like you and and that doesn't necessarily it doesn't just because they even if the u.s weren't being aggressive and nato weren't being wasn't being expansionist and the eu wasn't being expansionist it's very possible or probable that other powerful countries would look at weaker countries around them and think hey that's fair game right so i don't know i mean you, you can posture in that particular way and still have these other motivations yeah that's the thing like you know we there's always like endless nato debates on twitter and i think the question the real question i guess that would kind of prove this is you know if you ask these experts if nato hadn't moved since 91 would russia have done this right and i don't know what most people would say um on the other hand the reality that well according to you know the experts the reality is like it did move and it did move as a sort of tit for tat thing where like NATO felt threatened, Russia felt threatened, NATO felt threatened, Russia felt, or like the countries in between felt threatened and they asked for NATO. Um, I, you know, my, my perspective on a lot of this is like, especially in the last couple hundred years of history, no superpower operates in a vacuum. Um, and so there is no world where like the U S isn't a presence on China's shores, if that for makes sure. sense. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, my take on like China's overseas expansion is that as of now, it's how do I put this? It's a reaction to like the fact that they have all this capital sitting around and they need to invest it overseas, which is, you know, still aggressive and outward, but it's also kind of defensive at the same time. They're trying to mm-hmm. stop a crisis at home. And that's how empires get built. You know, I don't want to, I, I don't want to predict the future. I think, you know, my friends and I have talked about this, like, China right now could be in the early stages of what would look like like big world empires in the past. But up to now, they also haven't really necessarily shown that that's their goal. Yeah. Um, right. And there's a lot of debate about like, is China like the US? Do they have the same imperial ambitions as the US? Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel a lot of that stuff is like reading the tea leaves. I don't, I, I can't really tell, but I do think, I think it's fair to say like the attitude of both Russia and China is that they feel threatened. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe they shouldn't feel threatened. You know, um, we don't have to. Dis- we don't have to agree with them. But I don't. I kind of do buy that this is something that they do sincerely believe on some level. Um, and my sense is that you're somewhat sympathetic to kind of great power politics arguments. Yeah. In the sense that you know you have big 
axes. You have big poles, you have these big hegemons who are basically the only sort of strategic players in the world and small countries essentially don't really have true volition or sort of unable yeah. to, you know, kind of exercise that. And for purposes of policymaking from the great power center, you don't really care what the small countries think. Like, what do you want to say a little bit about <laughs> that? Like, does Ukraine matter, right? Like someone like John right. Mearsheimer is basically like, Ukraine doesn't really matter. Like, right. Yeah. So, Net, so Neto, Neto will join us in a few minutes. Let me just say, everything Tammy was saying is a straw person. That's not at all what I believe. No, this is, no, what I was <laughs> well, saying. No, I think no, that's, I, yeah, 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 totally. yeah. So that is, that is kind of what Mearsheimer is saying. And I was, you know, this Mearsheimer article that's in the New York Times or New Yorker interviewed by Isaac Totner has been making the rounds. And I guess everyone kind of takes what they want from that article. What I, I, and I've gotten an argument with my friends about this. What I think is interesting about Mearsheimer, not that I don't want to defend Mearsheimer in terms of he's anti-China, he wants, he loves nuclear proliferation, all that stuff. He's a, he's very much a cynic. You know, he's like, this is just the world. It can't, it can't be changed. I think what, um, I think he's, I don't know if this is the right word, refreshing. He, he's, he's different than most <laughs> approaches, which is, I think, kind of ultimately nationalist. I mean, he is nationalist. He's pro-US, but his analysis of power, he tries to stop he tries to like view it from the perspective of like all sides and say, if this was a byproduct of NATO and Russia, both expanding, like we have to think of both sides. Um, my, what I am fearful with a lot of the demonization of Russia is that it becomes off as one-sided that it's Russia's bad, which implicitly means like NATO is good or like we have to rescue them. Um, and you know, this can obviously lead to like military engagement and nuclear war and all these things we don't want. This and and in the interview you'll see like the questioner Isaac China will say like but isn't this imperialism shouldn't shouldn't right. Ukraine have will and agency and I see a lot of these articles uh, like I guess is like what we're debating about now there were articles over the weekend that were saying like stop West splaining like mansplain like West splaining the Ukraine to us and my reaction is like it's like on the one hand yes like everyone has agency everyone has will I don't you know it's almost like a philosophical question of course everyone has agency. But also that agency is some people have more than others. Like Russia has agency because they have oil and nuclear weapons. Yeah. Um, U.S. has agency because they have guns, you know. And Ukraine has comparatively less agency in this situation. And we know that because Ukraine is asking for NATO protection against what they recognize as a major threat on their on their doorstep. Um, so I think the agency or no agency question, which is often how it gets framed in like, you know, 250 word tweets. Um, can obviously be complicated. Um, but I think what Mearsheimer, I think Mearsheimer's point here, though, is that, so, because obviously he's just concerned with preserving U.S. hegemony. And so yeah. his query is, you know, if we accept that great power politics is real and that Ukraine does have limited agency and, you know, it's sort of in the great calculus, it doesn't matter because the from the U.S. perspective, the U.S. has to think this is our sphere of influence in order for Russia and China to respect that, we have to respect their spheres of influence. So right. essentially they can kind of do what they will, right? Is that, I mean, yeah, and that's where he ends up. Yeah, this. and he's definitely, again, he's a cynic who's like, you can't change this. It's just the way the world is. Mm-hmm. Mearsheimer was, and the realists, they were the ones who were like, everyone should have nuclear weapons because now that there's one, yeah. everyone should just have one. And obviously, like, I think that there's a lot of fucked up ways that could go. I think my, my whole thing is just in terms of, I mean, on a practical level, I don't, of course, disagree with like support the Ukrainian people, support Russian protesters against it. I don't want, I want peaceful resolution. I don't want military escalation. Like we're all, I think, of course, roughly yeah. right. It's more about like 
how do you explain a lot of this stuff? And, you yeah. know, obviously none of us have any democratic control over the U.S., much less Ukraine or Russia's government. So a lot of this is honestly just like rehearsing like philosophical arguments among ourselves. But this is like, I guess, interesting because the foreign policy is like the one thing that we're all kind of not clear about, you know, compared yeah. to the domestic issues on right. whatever, like progressive left side, the left of everything. Um, should we bring Aneta? Yeah. We can answer these questions too. <laughs> okay, for the second half of the show, we're so excited to have Nita C. Crawford from Boston University with us. Hi, Nita. Hello. How are you doing? Um, Nita is a professor of political science and the chair of the department at BU. In the summer of 2022, this summer, she'll become the Montague Burton Chair in International Relations at Oxford. I first met Nita in 2019 when I interviewed her about left-wing or left-ish foreign policy. Um, Nita is very well known as the co-director of the Costs of War Project at Brown and the author of Accountability for Killing, An Argument and Change in World Politics. She's an expert in Soviet military aircraft, and I know her to be also a longtime friend of the anti-war movement in the U.S. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. So, Nita, we have so many things to ask you, um, but... Maybe we could start with the environmental question. Um, we talked a little bit about Ukraine on the show last week and this issue of um, the EU's reliance on Russian natural gas in particular and the sort of pipeline issues and how that has contributed to some of the power politics that we're seeing right now. Can you talk a little bit about this connection between national security, militarism, and the environment in this context? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different layers to think about here. You know, in the very basic level, the world's dependence on fossil fuels has meant that um, certain regimes uh, have a lot of revenue and they're not necessarily democratic. Um, but in addition, um, we're at a moment when uh, the greenhouse gas emissions are um, basically we're at a, a kind of tipping point. We can go much worse in the world in terms of global warming or we can sort of moderate the consequences. And when states become insecure and increase their military operations, either their exercises or they're engaged in a war, they're actually increasing their greenhouse gas emissions. So the other part of this is um, countries are reluctant to confront the Russians because they contribute something, uh, you know, on the order of 20% of the world's energy supply. So yeah. Um, I, I think that it's the, the politics here is delicate. Um, the idea that we're trying to secure alternative sources of liquid natural gas for Europe and um, or alternative sources of any energy um, is um, uh, important as well. And I think that sort of slowed down the politics of creating and sustaining a coalition against mm -hmm. Putin. Um, so it, it, you know, these are familiar dilemmas. We've seen them throughout the 19th and the 20th century that um, oil politics, uh, fossil fuel politics in general, gets in the way sometimes of or directs and motivates foreign policy decisions. And it's, it's no different here. I think uh, the question of sanctioning 
Putin, though, and uh, decreasing the oil revenue from Russia uh, will create uh, eventually an incapacity and they'll lose the revenue and they lose the leverage over Germany and others when those countries diminish their use of uh, oil and natural gas. Hmm. So I think there's a lot of reasons to reduce oil and natural gas consumption, especially for the environment, but also because of the politics. Yeah. Do you, I mean, I forget like, or I'm not sure like what's happening now. I saw discussions about potentially opening up uh, sanctions on, on energy, but that hasn't happened yet. Right. Well, U S companies are taught. Well, the, the administration as of today was get, going to get from Congress, I think, a proposal to cut off or maybe make a law to cut off imports of Russian oil. I don't know where that is. I, I'm, I'm but the not key is that. mostly Western Europe more than the United States. Right. But right. so, yeah. right. Nord Stream 2, which is that natural the gas pipeline, pipeline has mm-hmm. been, uh, it's completed, but no gas is, is flowing. And that's not going to proceed according to Chancellor Schultz. And that's a very important thing. Um, I think it also, though, uh, feeds into the set of uh, the sense of crisis in Russia. And what I mean by that is I think that uh, Putin has a legitimation crisis on his hands. He's had one for several years. His the last time there were elections, it didn't look like they were free and fair. And, um, you know, there's a there's brewing discontent, which he tries to squash by you know, imprisoning people or poisoning them. But when you have a legitimation crisis um, and how you react is you create um, another, let's say, uh, either a distraction or you you try to solve another problem to boost your legitimacy, what he's done actually is deepened his own legitimation crisis. It's not worked. It's ironically backfired. And I think that this increases the instability hmm. in Russia. And it's unclear how um, the people around Putin will react. As we know, Stalin um, died, but he was actually probably poisoned. So oh. um, there are ways that Putin's got to be concerned that he this won't end well for him, not just politically, but perhaps mortally. Yeah. Wow. So, sorry, just to be clear. So you think that if they... The energy sanctions are even stronger. I've seen several scenarios. One is they just lose the revenue and the economy crashes. Another is that they can't, their military operations will just be, uh, I guess they've relied upon like trade to like keep their military going to sustain supplies. But you're also talking about leverage where, but I mean, the leverage comes from also the nuclear weapons, right? Like you don't want to mess with us militarily, um, regardless of oil. Right. Well, there's several sources of leverage. One is the revenue. But I, I believe that personally, Putin has enough revenue for himself yeah. and that the oligarchs probably have enough money. Um, the the state can mobilize infinitely by printing money as needed, um, which will cause longer term economic problems for Russia. But we're not talking about the longer term here. We're talking about the next several months, yeah. weeks and months. And again, also sanctions... Um, they work two ways, generally. One is they can cause people to, to view it as a signal that people aren't with you and um, 
you know, for Putin, it's it's undermining his international legitimacy and, and his support may diminish inside. They also work, as you said, by diminishing the capacity of the state to act. And it's not just the, the declining oil revenue, which they may make up by de- dropping their prices and then somebody will buy it. Um, but it's it's also that there are other sanctions on the Russian economy, which are biting. And uh, this is, again, deepening Putin's legitimation problems. And mm-hmm. he will try to solve that legitimation problem, which he doesn't want to uh, grow into a full-blown crisis by getting some military victory or some political concession in UK- Ukraine or elsewhere. He may come up with some other um, crisis that could be solved and he'll look good. Yeah. But it's it's um, it's very delicate and I understand why the administration, the Biden administration and other governments are proceeding cautiously because um, he's very unstable politically. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not speaking about his mental health. I'm just <laughs> saying it's an it's an unstable situation. Yeah. And um, then one adds to it questions about how a person who's experiencing a uh, legitimation crisis in a context of Russian politics where things can go south very quickly for a leader, he may be experiencing personal insecurity. And um, we have historically seen, you know, uh, many leaders do not do well when they're experiencing personal insecurity. Think about Nixon and his increased drinking and the fact that um, there were orders given to the Department of Defense to not listen to Nixon should he call and order a nuclear strike. Or think about um, how Kaiser Wilhelm, when things were not going well during World War One, and with Germany's uh, operations in France, had a mental crisis and um, stopped functioning. Stalin also stopped functioning immediately after the German invasion, Barbarossa, Bar- Operation Barbarossa. And um, this is yeah. any leader can yeah. fall apart. Right. So I, I think that um, it's a very delicate situation. Mm-hmm. And this is a person who, who has, um, at the, as far as we know, still got fairly good control over his weapons. Did you, so do you think that he made the wrong calculus around this war as being legitimating for him? So another, I mean, I, I was thinking about, you know, his rhetoric around denazification and sort of the, the you know, the, the kinds of rationales he put forward or, you know, preserving his sphere of influence against the West, et cetera. A- apparently, you know, kind of calculating that that would appeal to whoever he thinks his most important base is. Um, has that occurred? You know, does he? I'm sort of thinking about like maybe his the oligarchs versus the rest, right? Because there, are, of course, are anti-war protests within Russia, et cetera. So, you know, which calculation was he making based on which constituency? Well, I think there's probably three things happening. One is he's a true believer of what he's saying. It's possible, um, <laughs> and I think the tr- the true believer is more likely with the claims about NATO encirclement mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, NATO has objectively in the last 30 years expanded. So it doesn't, it's not fantastical. It's a well-known historical fact. He doesn't have to make that up. Um, Where he goes too far, I think people may not go with him. They may not go with him on, on uh, the claim of Nazism or that um, the Ukrainians are actually bombing themselves. Now, 
Um, they, they may not go there. Some may, right? And, and that's the question. So what you have is you, you've got um, also the, the issue of elite fracture. So what he's been trying yeah. to do is keep elites together. And when elites fracture and the consensus doesn't hold anymore around his leadership, um, he's will get increasingly desperate and either become more coercive, uh, which has its limits, because um, he'd have to uh, be quite coercive, or he's got to get uh, some way to bolster the narrative. And so that's where, if the West is something that he could plausibly use as another excuse, um, for instance, let's say, uh, uh, you know, Poland is discovered to have supported um, the Ukrainians much more actively. Um, or we discover, you know, lots of, uh, and I don't think this is the case, but let's say it was discovered that there were many Western soldiers there uh, from NATO and they were actively fighting. Um, and he could show that then he, he might feel that he has more support, but I I think we're getting into the realm of fantastical sometimes. And, Mm -hmm. and that happens. Um, uh, I don't think it'll be persuasive, um, but I think, I think that that he's really counting on information control, right? The pre-existing level of propaganda has done the work it's going to do, and then now he's got to control whatever information comes inside. And that's where I'm ambivalent about sanctions um, or or companies self-sanctioning. Like, I think it is good to have uh, Twitter. I think it is good to have um, outside influence, outside information coming in. There is information coming in, but it, it, it... needs to be the case that uh, people can reach out and find out about yeah. what is happening, what yeah. the Russian military is doing. So um, I, I think it sends an important signal to people that their their Facebook um, or their Twitter or whatever is interrupted um, or when uh, they cannot communicate as they are accustomed to with people in other countries, but I think it's also important for that lifeline of communication to be there. Mm-hmm. And we should say if folks haven't read about it, that um, most of the kind of free press, post-Soviet free press has shut down in Russia. And so as alongside the humanitarian crisis in the Ukraine, we're also seeing a sort of humanitarian crisis in Russia or human rights crisis in Russia as well. well there's a dearth of information, that's for sure. Yeah. And um, a severe fear of journalists for speaking out. Absolutely. I, I could understand that. I mean, you know, the thing that I said for the Washington Post was I thought that it was possible. This was before it was it was shown that the Russians were targeting civilians. I, th- yeah. I said I thought it was possible that the Russians would target civilians. And, um, you know, I got a little nervous that the Post published that out of a long interview <laughs> because... Right. Like Putin's we, we known to, <laughs> no, Putin's known to like not deal kindly with people who don't yeah. speak well of him. Yeah. So, so on Twitter, right, you and, see you see all these yeah, videos of Russians protesting, and I don't know what to make of these because it's like a hundred in a massive country. Is there? What do you make of this? Like this idea that Russians themselves might, you know, voice their opposition and somehow affect the war. Well, in a lot of ways, the organized opposition has been jailed or killed, right? Yeah. Uh, or silenced in other ways through um, intimidation. And uh, the press is uh, not uh, able, if it 
to the extent that it was, to be critical. And that's on the one hand. On, on the other hand, I do believe that elite fracture is occurring. I do believe you see evidence of the average Russian, even uh, you know, with the threat of many years in jail, stepping out into the street and saying, this is enough. And it's wrong. No war. And I, I think that that is powerful and that is frightening to mm-hmm. yeah. Putin. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the more sort of outlandish the sentence for speaking out and, and attending a rally, and yet people are still turning up, that's got to be worrisome yeah. to him. Yeah. I mean, do you, I mean, I don't know. We can't know this, but like, do you, do you get the sense that the majority of the country, the sort of average Russian, or maybe like a half the country kind of feels this way at least, if not... I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's years of him establishing a rapport and building a reputation as a strong person and um, developing a narrative of both uh, Russian humiliation, which is a powerful motivator for some people, and uh, Russian glory. So yeah. the two go together. And when a regime has the narrative of humiliation on the one hand and then you know past glory and the promise of future glory – that's a very attractive narrative, a, a very attractive nationalist narrative to many people. And they may just choose to believe all of that. So I, I think absent, um, uh, you know, better information, I, I don't have that sense of how many people disagree. Yeah. And what do you think about, you know, this, the worries about his going further in Eastern Europe. There's been a lot of talk about the Balkans. We know that the R- Russia has been, you know, sort of support, supporting, you know, Serbs. And um, so, so yeah, how, how worried should we be about the spread of this, whatever this is, I guess? Well, I think the, the world is closer to a major war than we've been in decades. Um, this is a major war and it could escalate. And I think it could escalate through planned steps by Putin. I doubt that that those are planned right now, though. They maybe has a a much longer game plan, which we may find out about. Or it could escalate through inadvertent escalation Mm. and unplanned. Um, And I think that that's more likely than him deliberately starting yet another conflict. He's having trouble finishing this one. And um, there things can spin out of control because um, it's just, remember the, the stories about World War One, how, you know, the, the train started going one way and then the train started coming another way. So plan X and plan Z and plan Y, everybody got on their plans and they went forward and then you couldn't stop World War One. Well, it's, it's, this is mutual fear of surprise attack and the, um, the fact that militaries have standard operating procedures and um, they believe that they need to show force could lead to inadvertent escalation, a situation that is tragic that no one wants. And unfortunately, we have the weapons that could make this a devastating mistake. Yeah. yeah. And where we'll feel the consequences for thousands of years. Hmm. Do you Do you fear that... I also wonder if, like, sanctions, if they're too severe, could also um, lead to escalation. Is that, it sounds like you're kind of 
in favor of sanctions as like a strategic, maybe in, in, in certain strategic ways could be useful, effective against Russia. But, you know, I've oh, seen- I think they can. Right. Okay. Yeah. And no, you- I believe very strongly in sanctions. Okay. Um, in of uh, targeted sanctions and some broader sanctions. I think hmm. that those are effective at diminishing the capacity of a state to act and at sending signals. Um, I don't think it changes their mind. Uh, like I don't think it will change Putin's mind. It will just solidify him and cause him to resist. But the uh, other people may be influenced by the sanctions, those who are most directly impacted with the loss of revenue um, or those who want to feel like they're part of an international community. Right. So in and, terms of... But, yeah, Sorry, ahead. no, yeah, just to kind of be clear, what you would prescribe i guess in terms of like what the u.s could do would be sanctions plus try to open up diplomatic you know opportunities as much as possible yeah i don't i don't have great hopes i mean i'm I'm kind of like Zelensky. i don't have great hopes for diplomacy here (laughs) okay you don't Um, what i do have hopes for is that there's a change in the balance of power within the kremlin within russia okay and that um the elite's say, we got to stop. This is hurting us too much. Mm-hmm. That they somehow pull him back. And then, then he needs a way to save face to get out of this and to um, deal with a legitimation crisis. So I see that as the more likely scenario for this to end well or better. Not that it's ending well for people who are already dead um, or displaced. And um, I, I, I do think escalation is possible, right? And uh, I, I don't think that uh, the Biden administration should, for example, have a no-fly zone. I think that is folly. And um, and I'm glad to see that many people in the United States understand the severity of the action, that um, uh, the consequences for that could, um, could be. And then I'm also... Uh, happy though that uh, NATO has reinforced itself, um, you know, very modestly with a few thousand troops here and you know here and there, and it's sh- it's showing that you, you can't come any further. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that's a, a a smart statement. What I what I would uh, really be concerned about is Putin trying to solve his legitimation crisis and maybe win if there is any winning here by escalating um, to using nuclear weapons. And people are talking about this as a live possibility. I think it is a possibility, unfortunately. And they have weapons that he might, and the Russian military might talk themselves into um, as thinking that they're usable, smaller, lower yield nuclear weapons. Um, But any nuclear weapon use both crosses a line, a taboo, which has been in place. Right. And um, raises the, the risk that um, there'll be inadvertent escalation. In addition, there are the physical consequences of that, which Russians may themselves fear, feel, such as, um, you know, increased levels of radiation. Now, we've also got the possibility for radiation to be released at the reactors that uh, the Russians have taken over. And I'm, I'm concerned about that, but that is nothing Uh, compared to if we get into a a shooting nuclear war, you know, and then on both sides, military leaders may convince themselves that, okay, well, they've used a nuclear weapon. We can use a nuclear weapon to say that's enough. And then 
um, uh, they convince themselves that each side will be um, restrained. And uh, then you're into a dynamic of escalation, which is hard to stop. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, Nina, if we could take a little bit of a, a kind of global uh, step back on this. Um, Andy is a China expert, and we've talked a little bit about how you know states, people like state uh, people in states like Taiwan and other places might be thinking about this, might be seeing their future sort of playing out in analogy analogous ways right now. And mm-hmm. um, I'm wondering, you know, what you think about how you know, people like Xi Jinping or other sort of, you know, big country leaders are kind of thinking about and watching what Putin's doing. What's at stake here um, in those terms? Yeah. You know, before Russia really clamped down, I would have said China was the most closed. China and North Korea were the most closed in terms of getting information in and, um, uh, and having people be free to speak out against their foreign policies. Um, so I, I believe that... Um, If I were Xi, I would be looking at, and I mean Xi Jinping, not Xi. (laughs) If I were Xi, I would be saying to myself, um, well, how's the world responding? Mm -hmm. They don't like it. And it's it's, um, very detrimental to one's economy. And I think Mm -hmm. the Chinese uh, are very concerned about economic growth and would see any action that would jeopardize the two, three, four, five, six, seven percent GDP, annual GDP growth, as something to be concerned about. And um, so I, d- I don't think that they would see this as um, an encouragement for aggressive action uh, on, you know, small islands or big islands. Mm-hmm. You know, I, but I, I do think that um, that is a consequence, that view is a consequence of the reaction, the, the nearly unanimous or universal condemnation and um, sanctions. And so if you could imagine, you know, Netflix cutting off, um, you know, sending movies to Russia, they'll certainly cut off <laughs> making movies in right. China. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that that's a very important um, element of the, the Chinese, how they solve their legitimation problems, which is to have strong economic growth. Because mm-hmm. every government has to solve its legitimation problems or else they're out. And in the U.S., we hopefully make our changes through elections peacefully. And, um, you know, so we can see that can be put in jeopardy. <laughs> always, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think that there, um, you know, a change in regime could come about through a failure of economic mm. policies or foreign policies that lead to economic failures or mm-hmm. at least a failure to grow. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. My, you know, my family's in Taiwan and my sense was every time you read about how Russia did not expect it to be this hard, they, they had these miscalculations, et cetera, et cetera, just purely from the kind of selfishly from a Taiwan perspective, these are all like good signs, right? To kind of tell China, like, this is not as easy as you think it would be. Um, do you, what do you make of, I thought this was kind of confusing, this article in the New York Times, not confusing what it was saying, but just like, what could this even mean? Uh, these the the reporting that like Putin and Xi were have been talking about creating some sort of like anti-Western, non-Western alliance. China has it seems like China was aware this is a possibility, but they didn't actually know like the date and like the concrete plans, and they're probably not that thrilled that Putin was so 
proactively aggressive. Um, on the other hand, they're not, you know, they're not denouncing Russia. And, you know, if, the, if Russia needs to sell oil, like China is a huge market that would, that would take that oil. So um, I, I can't really tell like what, what the relationship between the two could be. Um, do you, and obviously like the dynamics are probably different than the ones we're used to with like us and Western Europe, NATO dynamics. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's a long history of cooperation between China and the Soviets. And I think, you know, that was because um, it was convenient politically and geopolitically, their neighbors, right? So um, I think that you could see that relationship be firmed up. I think that's what Putin was trying to do. And to the extent that Russia looks like an unreliable partner, um, uh, an unstable partner, that's less likely. Um, I don't think that um, it will turn the Chinese towards the U.S. because the United States has, um, for the last couple of years, been very clear that it sees China as a economic threat and then almost equates that to being a military threat. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think that now that the enemy of our enemy is our friend or any of that is going to... Right, yeah. <laughs> none, thought- none of those dynamics are going to change dramatically. Uh-huh. Yeah. Tammy, you want to ask a question about... Yeah, I was, you know, I think for people on the left who are anti-war and um, concerned about, you know, imperial structures, this is a very concerning and discouraging time. You know, I think people were excited that the U.S. had gotten out of Afghanistan and that maybe we would have a bit of a more peaceful future. But with this, it seems like states are doubling down on their arms and, you know, and that there's a lot more attention and potentially that that'll be, you know, that'll be worse for the environment as you've written about, et cetera. Um, We had a question from one of our listeners um, about, you know, how you might see kind of the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years of left internationalism of anti-war movements. So, you know, kind of thinking about this period of forever wars and the critique of forever wars, and now being in this space, like, which way are we headed? And what can we do as people on the left to have a better future? Right. I think there's, there. Um, unfortunately, I think that the people who want to raise military budgets in the U.S. will raise the military budget. You've indicated that they're going to ask for more. Now, you recall that even with the end of the war in Afghanistan, the budget was higher than ever yeah. before. Yeah. So <laughs> they don't need much of an excuse. I mean, a war can end and they yeah. want more military spending. And that's because, you know, underlying U.S. foreign policy and um, especially the, the notions about what military force should be are, are militarist beliefs that are deeply ingrained in the United States sense of itself and how the world works. And I don't see those as being toppled by Putin's invasion. I see them as being reinforced. Yeah. So might makes right. Um, you ha- and if you want to stay alive uh, in the international system, you have to have you know, either good friends, um, big friends, or be militarily strong. Now, I think that's a recipe for Increased military spending, of course, and in the long run, that's detrimental to us all because then you have the situation where we've got thousands of nuclear weapons on both sides, uh, actually in seven countries in the world, and, um, you know, instability, insecurity, a security dilemma. So I don't think that's in the long run a good way to go. The last 20 to 30 years, we haven't actually, um, since the end of the Cold War, 
taken the opportunity to restructure, demilitarize, and that's why we're at the place we're at today. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I don't see this as a failure of the left. I think, if anything, it means that um, the the moderate and liberal um, vision was too militarized and we missed opportunities to decrease militarization in the globe. We missed opportunities to actually eliminate all nuclear weapons. They should be eliminated. And we missed opportunities to demilitarize Central Europe Um and uh, even Rumsfeld, before the 9-11 attacks, was talking about reducing U.S. military spending. We had moments mm. when we could have said, let's go another way. Uh, I think this makes it hard. It makes it hard to do yeah. that. And, and what you'll see is the interpretation of um, the Ukrainian situation to being that weakness invites aggression, whereas the interpretation of the situation could be that encircling a, a, a nervous and uh, understandably precariously internally balanced regime gets you um, nothing but reactivity mm-hmm. and um, potentially aggression. Now, um, you know, the other thing that's been true is that you know, as much as um, we've had signals from Putin that um, he's a- aggressive, Chechnya is a signal. Um, uh, you know, it's it's utter devastation, um, uh, not just a signal of, of the aggressiveness, but of the uh, cruelty. Yeah, with civilian his, targets. Yeah. Yes, civilian targeting. Um, and the other... Uh, Russian behaviors, including the previous invasion of Ukraine, we've we've not stood up prior to this in a way that sent the right signals. So, um, and they, but they don't have to be military signals. They could have been all along economic sanctions. So we're yeah. willing to sanction China over intellectual property, but we're not willing to sanction Russia. Yeah, and that's just not you know, the way for severe violations of of human rights. And um, I don't think that's the way to make foreign policy. This is, this is, sorry, this is something I've been trying to figure out as I try to like really rush, rush up on 30 years of history is that, you know, it seems that, you know, when Chechnya happened, um, the U S and the UK were like totally, they didn't care. Like they were like almost, they were supportive of Putin and they seemed to be talking towards, uh, I don't know if that's maybe a mischaracterization, but they, they obviously would, they had, a, I guess, a much more um, pro-Russia attitude at that time. And then it seems like 2007, you know, where Putin makes a speech in Munich about NATO encirclement. That's kind of like this turning point where any potential for U.S.-Russia, NATO-Russia partnership was like began to sour. And I think a similar story could be told about China and the U.S., where China, the U.S. overlooked human rights abuses all the time in China. Then all of a sudden they care, you know, the last five years. Um, and I'm just, so I, like, I, I know the China case, I wonder like, what, what are we missing in the story in terms of in the nineties, the U S NATO were trying to like get along with Putin and then what happened along the way? Right. Well, I, I think, well, well, Putin wasn't in power in the nineties. It was Yeltsin. 99, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think, um, well, obviously it's really complicated, but yeah. I think what's, what's <laughs> missing in the story here is that um, the United States in the 1990s 
had this vision of promoting democracy. And liberal democracy would lead to peace. And Clinton um, had, and and so did Bush before him, but Clinton had this vision of um, NATO enlargement as being part of this, right? Uh, It's promoting democracy by having membership in NATO be more open to democratic states. You have to want to be like us, in other words, to join us. And um, the restructuring of Russia, I think, was uh, people thought that it might work well, that there might be more democracy in Russia. And I think that there was a kind of uh, wait and see attitude. And um, frankly, the U.S. had already begun to be concerned about even though we think that 9-11 came out of the blue, mm-hmm. but had already begun to, to be concerned about um, international terrorists, and in particular al-Qaeda. And uh, that's on the one hand. And on the other hand, we do have a history of looking the other way um, with governments which commit human rights abuses um, if it's inconvenient to, to stare right at it and to call governments out, or the condemnation is sort of half-hearted. So, you know, you recall that in the 1990s, when the Israelis were um, very aggressive in Palestine, it was, um, and in they're also building settlements and continue to build settlements, um, mm-hmm. it was inconvenient to call out that ally in the Middle East because they're the beacon of democracy in, in the Middle right. East. Democracy right. in name, yeah. Right, exactly. They're the ally. Um, they're the, the largest um, recipient of U.S. foreign aid in the region and so on. Right. And it's um, occasionally inconvenient to call out others over, you know, what uh, could be human rights violations. So, you know, remember... Back in the early 80s, it was inconvenient to call out until the Congress um, said we need to sanction South Africa, our ally in South Africa. Right. So um, there has to be a change of U.S. domestic politics, a, a paying of attention to a, a region before sometimes the government of the United States will change its tune. And clearly it took a massive mobilization of people to change U.S. foreign policy towards South Africa and for sanctions to be imposed over Ronald Reagan's veto. And it would it would have had to have taken a lot more attention on Chechnya in the way that people were paying attention to Kosovo and Bosnia um, to to really have um, had an effect on um, U.S. policy towards Russia and. And it was well known that uh, what was happening in Chechnya was a. a so I, so mean, I mean, given that very glum assessment, then <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but we do have a history of of as you said with with uh, South African apartheid, you know, certain moments where we were able to use our strength and numbers to affect foreign policy. Um, where, what's your sort of diagnosis of where kind of left internationalist peace activism is right now? I don't know. I, you know, what's, I was on a, uh, a Zoom 
with lots of people, lots of peace activists uh, a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And I said, in response to a question from the audience, I said, you know, um, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine is not okay. And the people in the, it wrote in the chat some very harsh things. Some people were supportive of my calling out the Russians and some people were saying, well, the United States is, is running a puppet regime there. Oh, boy. And, yeah. And that was worrisome to me. Yeah. Um, so I, I think um, I couldn't tell if that was the majority sentiment. Most people just kept on with what we were talking about, which was something completely different, um, military industrial complex. And, um, you know, so I, I don't know if the, if the, the left has ever been coherent or um, will be, but I think that, um, there are a couple things that we have to have as goals, or I'd, I'd like to see as goals. One is uh, to push back against increased military spending. Secondly, to continue with the restructuring of U.S. forces to the extent that they've occurred after the end of um, the war in Afghanistan and the, and Iraq, and that includes base realignment and closure. Mm-hmm. We have excess military capacity. Um, third, I'd like to see us you know, really engage with arms control with everybody, right? Reduction of uh, nuclear weapons and conventional forces and control. So I think there has to be a real push, in other words, to go back to that old agenda of um, communication and deconfliction and uh, that is making sure your military forces don't get the other side, guys' military yeah. forces anxious. And then um, arms reductions. Yeah. So. Um, that sounds great. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, I think that, that has to be our agenda. Yeah. Right? No, and that's and the other important. thing is, the other thing is people are always saying, you know, well, if we reduce military spending, then we reduce procurement of weapons and won't that cause job losses? It's, it's like yeah. the argument military about, Keynesianism, you know, yeah. Yeah, converting to, uh, to question, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, about oil, right? Or yeah. or coal Green transition, right? How do you right? Yeah. So we what we need is a plan mm-hmm. for those jobs, and they're uh, a significant portion of the American economy Absolutely. in terms of yeah. um, size of yeah. budgets, and um, but actually, it's not that many jobs, and you get more jobs spending that money doing something else. Mm-hmm. And the same with um, coal and oil. Yes, there's a lot of jobs, but you could get more jobs doing something else, maybe green energy. So I think that um, to the extent that members of Congress are tied to the military industrial uh, manufacturing in their state or their district, we have to have alternatives to that. Yeah. And yeah. That's a longer term yeah. project. We should we should wrap up. We've kept you for a while, but you know, I just I guess one last question is very subjective is you know i know you're like in the heart of like international relations you think about this stuff all the time i feel like a lot of this stuff we're talking about like nuclear weapons disarmament proliferation these are really big deals in like the 80s into the 90s it might just be like i'm in my bubble i haven't thought about a lot of this stuff for a while is it kind of like what what is your perspective in terms of saying like these debates that maybe you've always paid attention to kind of have popped up again like john mearsheimer's in the new yorker talking about realism and you know. Well, I mean, John Mearsheimer wanted Germany to get nuclear weapons. Right, right. But these are. You know, it went away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, right, exactly. And, and um, you know, I, 
I like John Mearsheimer as a human being. I think his world is a world that's extremely dangerous. If we had the world mm. that John Mearsheimer thought we should have, um, it would be a lot more dangerous than it is now. Mm. And yeah. it's quite dangerous now. Yeah. Right. But- I, I think that, that um, yeah, no, where, you know, where do these debates um, go? Um, I, you know, everybody breathed a sigh of relief, as did I, when the Cold War ended. And I wanted to move on to other stuff. Right? <laughs> and Did you get a uh, chance? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I did. Actually, I did briefly until I actually started working on ethics um, <laughs> uh, for about, oh, man. about seven years and yeah. emotions. I did some whole, whole other IR theory. Yeah. And then right after 9-11, I'm like, I'm back to war yeah, again. Yeah, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that um, what, what you see with um, – I'm on the board of the Council for a Livable World. And what you see is when, you know, um, threats of nuclear war come up, funding comes to the Council, and people are all happy to support the work of the Council for a Livable World, and they're all happy to support the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. I was going to say the Bulletin, yeah. <laughs> right. And, and then that support goes away and, or the union of concerned scientists has a lot of support right. to do work on arms control. And then we forget about it because it's terrifying. Yeah. Right. And we'd rather be focused on other things like what, I don't know, global warming, another <laughs> yes. cheerful topic, yeah. um, which we've also um, turned away from, you know, a lot of uh, world politics is actually deeply emotional. It's always been about fear and hope. And I think that um, when we're afraid, we either uh, arm to the teeth and um, get aggressive and look for conflicts because that's what your brain, that's what your amygdala does on fear. And and when we're hopeful, um, we try to make a better world. And um, we've been running on fear and running to hope. And, you know, um, the, the thing about these distractions like Donald Trump um, and other uh, people who who function by tapping into fear and humiliation is that um, they also take us away from the deeper um, processes that have been ongoing. For instance, by by the United States being at war for twenty years, uh, major mobilization, um, we our our democracy has been harmed, right? And, and the harm to our democracy is because militarism and democracy are the antithesis of each other. That, that when, you, when you put force on the table, you say, it's possible that I'm not going to listen to you and that I'm going to take out a gun to resolve our disputes. But when democracy is the mode, then you say we're taking force off the table and it is possible to have a conversation, it is possible to run by the rule of law. And so uh, when you see greater militarization, you see decreased democracy. When you see increased democracy, you see decreased use of force, right? So that old idea is, I think, correct, mm-hmm. but you cannot uh, promote democracy in a shallow way. Yeah, um, It has to be deep democracy, deliberative democracy. And, um, you know, it's no accident that uh, people like Trump are sort of uh, – uh, knee-jerk force people. They they believe that you know that we have to show strength, and that's the only thing that works. And um, I I think that's um, 
both emblematic of and indicative of the diagnosis that we should have of our problem and a distraction. Yeah. And deeply anti-democratic. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's hope for more hope <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, but the thing is I have a lot helpful. of hope. Yeah. No, I actually have a lot of hope. I, I okay. believe, you know, look, Great. movements ended the cold war movements mm-hmm. ended yeah. uh, the Vietnam war. Mm-hmm. Right. Many good things come from citizen mobilization and, and an educated population, which is what you're trying to participate in, a population that has a deeper discussion about the costs, the risks and the benefits yeah. and the uncertainties in the world is is that that's the hope I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's um, yeah, that's a, that's a much, much better note to end the podcast. on. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, no, this has given us a lot to think about. Um, so thanks so much, uh, Nita, for coming on the show. And um yeah, I'll talk to you next week, everyone. Bye, everyone. Okay, take care. Thank you. Bye.